Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, even as the country heads into a seventh wave of COVID, public opinion polls show that COVID is, is well down the list now uh, of some of the main concerns that people have. You know, inflation, the economy, et cetera. Uh, that seems to have taken prominence. So as low as, as COVID has fallen on that list of priorities, I suspect monkeypox is much lower. Uh, and, and in fairness, the, the risk to Canadians for now remains quite low. The declaration of a global public health emergency around monkeypox has not changed the risk. As of this past weekend, 681 confirmed cases of monkeypox across five provinces, largely in Quebec and Ontario. Those numbers are expected to rise, though. I suppose in, in some consolation is that we've not seen quite the explosion uh, of cases as we've seen in other countries, like south of the border. But there is that question right now that we need to answer. Maybe it's too late to answer it. But do we want this to be a permanent feature of our virus landscape? Are we okay with this becoming endemic in this country? So what does this global public uh, public health emergency mean in terms of how we respond? Have we missed a window to contain this outbreak? What do we need to do going forward? Joining us uh, for some thoughts on where things stand, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Dr. Jason Kindrachuk, Assistant Professor in the Medical Microbiology and Infectious Disease Department, University of Manitoba, Canada Research Chair as well in the Molecular Pathogenesis of Emerging Viruses. Dr. Kindrachuk, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Uh, It was interesting. I I saw the story out of Japan where Japan, I, I don't believe they've had any uh, confirmed cases of monkeypox so far, but they're they're taking a number of steps to to at least try to keep it that way. I guess it's called being proactive. Uh, not something we've seen, unfortunately, a lot of examples of though in other countries. It's it's been a tough gamut, right? I, listen, I I think that we we have to be fair. I mean, monkeypox certainly came out of out of nowhere in, in many respects for us, right? It it hit the stage pretty quickly after the cases were first identified in the UK, and we saw a pretty quick explosion of cases uh, that, that started to go grow across Europe, and of course, cases that showed up in Canada. So the, the timing has really only been a couple of months. Um, the, the proactive stance is certainly if you're a country that has not yet had introduction of cases or even a region, you, you have some of that luxury to start to say, okay, what what have been the the missteps that maybe have been taken or or the things that have not worked. Um, but but for countries that, that were at the forefront of this, you didn't have any time. Now that that being said, there were decades prior to this where you know where I think internationally we made a, a lot of big missteps and, and, and certainly has helped, you know, uh, uh, kind of exacerbate the situation we have now. But it's an unfortunate reality of, of emerging fetch diseases. We we want to be proactive, but we also have to be ready for the unpredictable as well. Do you fall on the optimistic side or the pessimistic side as to that question of, of whether we've missed an opportunity to contain this or to prevent it from becoming kind of a, a permanent feature here? Oh, listen, I, I grew up in Saskatchewan and I was a long, you know, long-time suffering riders fan, so I, I try to be optimistic at the best of times. I, listen, it's, it, it's, it's difficult, right? Um, 
there, there's an, an optimism in the sense that we uh, certainly we know where the virus is spreading. We know the overrepresentation within the MSM community. We have uh, vaccines. We have therapeutics. Um, we've just gone through COVID. So from a public health standpoint, we know the things that we can implement in terms of messaging to communities, all those strategies. I, that, that gives me some sense of optimism. The pessimism is every day that we see more cases, there is a concern that this is going to continue to spiral uh, out of control. Um, where we can no longer contain it. And then there's always the, the uh, additional question of what happens if this becomes something that's endemic because it's introduced into wildlife that happens to be susceptible or animal species that, that are susceptible. Those are things yeah. we can't necessarily answer, but we don't want to have to answer if we don't have to. You certainly seem to have seen a much bigger explosion of cases in the U.S. There's been a lot of criticism of how the CDC has handled this. The, has Canada been fortunate so far, or would you argue maybe we, we've done a better job responding? That's a good question, right? I, and I, I think that, again, we get back to the situation of saying, where, you know, if we're doing better, is it because uh, either, you know, we haven't necessarily had people that have felt as comfortable coming forward with cases, um, or is it that you actually have been able to get in front of this from a messaging standpoint, and you actually have enabled people and empowered people to feel comfortable with coming forward, and you've been able to describe the symptoms, and you have people that are more comfortable with access to healthcare um, that, that are able to do that? I think that's, that's a broader question that I can't necessarily answer outside of saying, wh- whatever we're doing, we need to keep doing it, but we have to appreciate the regions that haven't seen cases yet. They need to be on alert and getting a game, you know, proactive and, and certainly in front of this, uh, but before those cases start to take hold. Now, there's an element to this, and, and I don't know if it's fair to describe this as political, but it's a sensitivity to this, right? And, and there's a question of having an effective targeted response and also trying to avoid stigma, trying to avoid yeah. false sense of security. But primarily so far, it has affected uh, the gay community, specifically gay men. Uh, at yes. this point. Uh, so that, that tricky balance in terms of acknowledging that and making sure that we are targeted in how we respond, but avoiding some of those other pitfalls as well. It's not easy, right? And, and I think certainly one of the things we have to appreciate, too, is that listen, this was also a, a virus that has you know, preceded introduction into the international community, where it was, you know, it's been endemic for a number of, of, of years in, in areas in West and Central Africa. So there's also that aspect of saying, by the way, we need to be sensitive to the fact that all the, the international uh, concern that's being raised right now, we have to also address the fact that why wasn't this addressed previously? Um, certainly in the communities now, part of this is, yes, we, we need to be able to get messaging out. We need people to feel empowered. We also need to be able to get cogent messaging where there is not a stigma attached. It is overrepresented within specific communities right now for transmission, but it is not a unique virus that is only found within the MSM community. This is a virus that is certainly... It's promiscuous in its nature. It will find cracks to move into, uh, you know, whether it's male or female or young or old, if you give it those opportunities. So, yes, we know where it's overrepresented now. That should not preclude our concern for other communities. And certainly by empowering the communities that are being affected right now, we reduce the pressure we will see on other communities down the lines. We need everybody on board. Right. So this, the, the question about how it's being spread right now and, and just the basic nature of the virus, does, does it make sense at any level to call it a, a sexually transmitted disease? Oh, so this gets into a much larger debate that was playing out on social media this weekend. Listen, I, I, I'm an Ebola guy by, by nature, right? So for, for a number of years and decades, um, we considered Ebola as just being a close contact disease. But there is a sexual uh, transmission 
part of that disease, which is based on persistence. And now we appreciate that. You know what? People that recover from disease, they can potentially transmit the disease and, and carry, on, carry the virus for a number of years. Um, we don't know everything about viruses. Monkeypox is certainly a good example of that. So uh, right now we know it certainly seems to be spread through sexual contact, whether that is directly related to intercourse um, is a bigger question. And, and certainly the, the, the passing of things like semen, we don't know. Um, but we need to investigate this. So, uh, again, we, we have to appreciate that there are a number of things we don't have definitive answers to. And now is the time that we need to address that. Well, and part of it is, you know, how the virus itself is behaving. I mean, viruses do yeah. evolve, as we've learned the hard way through COVID. But you know, it seems like this particular virus, though, it, it has changed. But what do we make of that? Well, there's, there's another question that, that I think we need to appreciate, right? And, and part of this is when you look back through, you know, really five-plus five, five plus decades of, of epidemiological and clinical data that we've accrued from West and Central Africa, that data has given us certainly some picture, and, and certainly the, the data the latter uh, couple of decades from the DRC and from Nigeria have shown this increase in human-to-human transmission. We don't fully understand that, but we also need to appreciate were we missing cases, certainly milder disease or cases that maybe were tied back to uh, to the MSM community? Um, was there a stigma that was attached so we didn't hear about that? Or if it was a, it was a mild disease and it was self-limiting, people maybe didn't go to a healthcare practitioner or they assumed that it was something else. So there's there are all these caveats that, yes, we're seeing things that are that are different now from what we historically have known about monkeypox. But we also have to appreciate that our knowledge and understanding um, may have also been limited. So did we miss some of these uh, these presentations as well? So in terms of the response, and this gets back to the declaration of the global public health emergency, does it change our approach? Does it help mobilize resources in a different way? Uh, you know what, I hope, I, I hope that the biggest thing that it does is it starts to, again, increase that, that communication. So a couple of things is it, it puts a spotlight on the fact that, listen, this is not normal. So we're coming through COVID. Yes, so far, we, you know, fatalities for monkeypox have been extremely limited. Um, we, we have not heard, a, a, you know, a, a really high instance of, of really severe morbidities. But you know what? It is a disease that is still affecting people. So mm-hmm. we need to be able to get this contained. And if that starts to enable uh, international communities and, and governments to work together to a common approach, that's great, in particular with, with sharing data. Um, in regards to vaccine sharing, I think, again, we get back to this question of, we just went through this with COVID. Are we going to see sharing of vaccines between nations? And by the way, appreciating that while we have this, this public health emergency in non-endemic areas, there's a continuing issue in endemic regions where we have also uh, had a vaccine equity issue and, and therapeutic equity issue, and infrastructure equity issue for years. So I hope it sheds a spotlight on all of that and enables us to, to at least make some forward progress. Well, I did want to touch on this. You, you shared this story, and I saw a couple other people as well. An interesting feature from, from BBC on, on the vaccine that we're using to try to prevent monkeypox is the story notes, this vaccine is made from a lost virus that no one has ever been able to identify. Can, can you help us understand this? That, that seems wild to me. Oh, yeah. It's, listen, I, you know, I, I have to brush up on all my, uh, my pox virus history, um, you know, again, to, to go back through the, all the nuances of it. But it is this sense with, with pox viruses have been around, and certainly human pox viruses have been around for a long period of time. You've got folks like David Evans in Alberta who are absolute experts on this. Yeah. Um, we have to appreciate that prior to what, you know, what we understand now about FDA and drug approvals and vaccine approvals, things were a little bit different. So, 
we have vaccines that work, and certainly the smallpox vaccine that was used for hundreds of years and certainly even during the, the 20th century, where we don't necessarily know what the history of that, that vaccine is um, or, or where it emerged from. And that's, that's the bigger question. We think about things like vaccinia. It continues to uh, certainly to, to be found in, in Brazil. We hear about human cases, but we don't know much about its actual origin. So we're, we're still at an infancy in understanding our relationship with, with even beneficial viruses. Yeah, it's a fascinating stories mentioned. Uh, it's up at the BBC today. We'll leave it there for now. Dr. Kinderchuk, always appreciate the insight, and thanks again for making some time for us here today. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. All the best. Uh, Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, Assistant Professor of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba, Canada Research Chair in the Molecular Pathogenesis of Emerging Viruses. So yeah, from this BBC article, so um, to combat monkeypox, scientists have turned to two vaccines previously used against smallpox. Now, both of these vaccines are exceptionally safe and thought to be highly effective, but they too are part of the puzzle. For more than a century, the smallpox vaccine was widely assumed by the scientific community to be made from cowpox. But in 1939, more than, or about 150 years after vaccination was invented, molecular tests revealed that it's not. More recently, genetic sequencing has confirmed these findings. Instead, those vaccines are based on an unknown virus that no one has been able to identify a ghost pathogen that has only ever been found in vaccine form. Despite an 83-year search, no one knows how, why, or precisely when this imposter appeared in the smallpox virus or whether it even still exists in the wild. Only one thing is clear. Millions who live through smallpox owe their lives to its existence. And without it, our current monkeypox outbreak is likely to have spread even more rapidly. Isn't that fascinating? Welcome back. Afternoons on 770 CHQR 403-974-TALK is our number. With Hockey Canada back in the spotlight and the Commons Heritage Committee continuing its hearings, its investigation today, uh, we got this statement uh, just within the past hour from Sheldon Kennedy, who says, Given my 26 years of advocating for victims, I can't sit idle any longer. A statement from Sheldon Kennedy on Hockey Canada's action plan. Quote, the same people with a new plan expecting different results is the definition of insanity. I call for the resignation of Hockey Canada CEO Scott Smith, his leadership team, and the board of directors. Uh, calling them to resign and step down from their positions immediately. Enough is enough already. That's from Sheldon Kennedy, who's, who's clearly past the breaking point of his own frustration. I think a lot of people are feeling the same. It's almost shocking at some level that there haven't been resignations at Hockey Canada. Given all the revelations that have come out about how allegations of sexual assault have been handled, uh, things that have been done in secrecy, the funds that have been used, etc. So ahead of these hearings, yes, yesterday Hockey Canada released a new action plan. Uh, They say will demonstrate that Hockey Canada is serious about fixing these problems. Much skepticism remains, as noted uh, in the statement from Sheldon Kennedy. There was an open letter uh, issued yesterday to the federal sports minister. Uh, from 28 academics from 21 institutions in Canada, the UK, and the US, uh, that these problems are a symptom of a deeply rooted culture that exists in hockey and other sports, and that we need to do a much better job of holding sports organizations accountable. And it goes beyond just Hockey Canada. We learned today, uh, Senior Director at Sport Canada, telling members uh, of the committee that his organization was made aware of this alleged sexual assaults uh, in 2018, but did not follow up with Hockey Canada or tell the minister, uh, the office of the sports minister. 
Well, joining us to talk more about all of this is uh, one of the signatories of that letter, uh, Taylor McKee, Assistant Professor of Sports Management at Brock University uh, with a specific focus on hockey culture. Professor McKee, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, first of all, your your reaction to uh, Sheldon Kennedy's statement. Obviously, he carries a, a lot of weight in this area. His demand that the uh, CEO, the leadership team, the board of directors resign. Your thoughts? Powerful statement, certainly, and, and certainly a name that carries a lot of resonance in Calgary. This is something that we've been looking at now for, for a little while, certainly with Hockey Canada, and that is who should be put in position to put things back together. Now, the action plan in, in general, and, and just speaks specifically to Sheldon Kennedy's statements, Calling for the resignation, I mean, I think we are, as you mentioned in the introduction of this, I think we are at that point, maybe long past that point. The idea that we are going to now entrust the people that created this mess to move forward uh, seems a rather dubious way to fix this problem. Another crucial aspect of this is the, uh, is the idea that those who have been put in power so far, i.e. the people in Hockey Canada, either did not know enough or knew too much or didn't know anything and are going to come out of these hearings and being told, you know, do a good job moving forward. I'd like to hear your action plan. We need to adjudicate what happened in 2018, and these people need to be held to account. And if that means resignations, so be it. Right. And so this, this is a multifaceted story. And obviously, there's the very narrow focus on what happened in 2018, both the alleged sexual assault and how that was handled by Hockey Canada at the time. We've now got a separate story that's emerged about the World Junior Team in 2003. But in a broader sense, it's not just about how Hockey Canada handled these specific incidents, right? It, it, this is, and, and the letter cuts to the point here, that this is a symptom of something much larger. How, how do you explain or define what it is we're trying to tackle here? You're absolutely right. There's a really good way to frame this sort of issue. Certainly, you don't even need to look at hockey for even this past month for an example that confirms what you just said. Look at Gymnastics Canada saying, please, you know, halt our funding federally until we sort out our mess from our board. So, Certainly, it's not unique to hockey, though there are a, there is a very, very large, glaring problem present in hockey. I think we all can see right now. But it, it comes down to this extremely tricky notion of vulnerability for both athletes and then also when athletes interact with, with a wider public. There is a double-barreled scandal sort of facing Hockey Canada right now where athletes are being abused at some levels and are committing abuse at other levels. This comes down to the, the duty of care that sport organizations owe to Canadians, certainly, but also to those young players and, and to parents when they register for their, children's, their children for sports. Are they being taken care of? Do they have the ability to go to someone if something's going wrong? So the, the issue here is certainly a more broad one about what the role of, of care for, for athletes, for, for children, for, for minors, and what kind of role do they play, do sport organizations play in protecting the public and, and, and shaping these people into good, upstanding young citizens. And, and certainly in the case of hockey, as we're seeing right now, there's a lot of work to be done, and, and I wonder sometimes about what Hockey Canada sees its role in, in a larger Canadian sporting context. What did you make then of the action plan yesterday? Because, I, I mean, I, it would be unfair maybe to dismiss it altogether. There do seem like some, some important measures here, but, I mean, is it, is it too little too late, or is it too forward-looking? What, what do you see as the problem with it? Great point. I think it is important to, to sort of to, to remove total cynicism and skepticism from every step of the action. And there is a lot in that action plan that people have been asking for, like this yeah. focus on independent regulation. However, we can have our discussion about action plans and moving forward and shaping culture. We can talk about that uh, for, for months and months and months to come. The, the timing of this action plan is curious. So 
to use a sporting analogy here to sort of recenter this in, in the, the language of sports for, for perhaps our listeners, if a team was failing and that team was looking to, to reorganize their team moving forward, would you entrust the same organization of people to shape the rebuild of this franchise or this franchise moving forward, this team, this club, with the same people that led them into disarray in the first place? And that's kind of where we're at with this, where the, okay, the action plan seems solid. The action plan has many solid points, many of which we, even in the letter that we've uh, signed and sent to members of parliament and the media are even contained solely in this action plan, but it doesn't change the fact that what they are sitting in front of the members of the parliament right now, we need clarity and adjudication and, and remedies on that specific context from 2018 and now 2003. We need to get all the rot out of the house first before we start building a new foundation. Right, which gets, gets to the whole question of how you go about changing a culture, because that represents something that's that's deeply ingrained, that, that an action plan doesn't really fix, does it? Absolutely. I mean, and that's a that's a, certainly a tricky question. Like, how do we change culture and how does that, that go on? And Hockey Canada certainly is invested in trying to answer that question. But but currently, the action plan moving forward does recognize that sort of they need to, I think the first point is accountability, and that's that's fine. But the notion that we can trust the same people, or even the same type of organization of people, to not recapitulate the same narratives over and over again, and not recreate the same fraught structures we see in Hockey Canada right now. And there are fixes for it. There are ways we can fix this moving forward. And likely it does not involve the same people that made things the way that they are now. So if that means bringing in people on a permanent basis, 365 days a year with permanent salaried positions who have expertise in dealing with trauma, expertise in dealing with child protective services, those types of things. If that's what that means, that's so be it. But but saying, don't worry, we're going to do things better next time because we've learned our lesson. We don't even know what's happened yet. We have no clarity on these issues yet. So it's very difficult to adjudicate whether or not this action plan is sufficient until we know the full details of what's even happened in the first place. What is it about that culture, though, that has led to this problem? Because it's not just that there's a culture of silence, that there's a power imbalance, or, or that offenders uh, seem to be protected by all of that, but there, there's something deeper there in terms of what leads to these kinds of attitudes, what then manifests itself in, in be it sexual assault, abuse, harassment, etc. Where have things gone wrong with hockey culture specifically or, or sport culture more broadly? Oh, man. How, how much time do you have? Well, I'll try and be as brief as possible. I'll try and make broad conclusions uh, based on, on, on a number of different factors because there is no clear answer, right? There is no, oh, well, you know, hockey does things this way, and that's why they have the issues that they have right now. And this is not to say that hockey is, is alone in its troubles. No, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Certainly there are factors that are different in hockey compared to other sports. Certainly the age in which players are forced to leave home is different from some sports. Not all. Soccer has the same sort of issues at a higher elite level. Certainly the ways in which teams interact with each other on a, on a game-to-game basis is a little different in hockey. Those of you who've played it understand that. There is a different sort of closed-door mentality. I think the most troubling part from hockey culture is certainly this notion of silence. And certainly there is the notion of camaraderie and team secrecy in other sports as well. But hockey prides itself on this notion that, you know, things that happen in that space of the locker room stay there. And that extends to outside the locker room as well. And the question I always ask people is to think about, when do players learn those things? Do they learn them at the, at the World Juniors? Certainly not, right? I mean, many of these men, these young men are finished products in terms of their views on the world, seemingly. By the time they reach those, that, that, uh, that position, many are treated like professionals. Do you learn it when you're 14, 12, 10? And if you think back to when these, these behaviors are learned and when the notion of silence becomes acceptable, that's when things get a little more icky, a little darker, 
or looking back throughout the way that these things are, are brought through children, that could be a, a possible cause here. There's a lot of good research that's coming out about this, but we're probably going to start asking different questions when it comes to that notion of silence in hockey and hockey culture for sure. Yeah, I mean, we've had, and God, it feels like we've been having this conversation almost for decades, and, you know, the Graham James revelations and, and some other high-profile cases that, that were supposed to have prompted a conversation around all of this. I mean, we do have respect in sport. It seems like we've tried to to take steps. Like, have they just been insufficient, uh, the, the steps we've taken, or have we just kind of missed the opportunity to address this altogether? I'm glad you brought that point up about, you know, we've been here before, because you're absolutely right. This is this, the first question you get asked normally when you're talking about these issues is, are you shocked? You know, was it shocking? And, and I, I try to say, you know, I am shocked at, at the horror of these allegations and, and the horror of the details. It is shocking, but it's not surprising. And we can't allow ourselves to become numb to the actual events themselves and what's actually going on. So I don't say that, you know, we can't say, oh, yeah, well, you know, hockey, that's not the way to go. Because you're right. We've been here with decades. But with Graham James specifically, this was so much about identifying a wrongdoer, placing it on the wrongdoer and saying, this is a bad apple, we, we can get rid of him, and then there the problem is fixed. Not necessarily looking at a situation in which, uh, the, not to get too deep into the Graham James situation, but not to, to, to interrogate and, and have a look at a system that would allow Graham James to do what he did for as long as he did, in the full view of everyone that he did. And again, if you look at the Kyle Beach scenario, which again, I don't mean to, to divert ourselves even further away from the topic at hand, but... This is a scandal that took place in the National Hockey League. Right. So that, if it can happen in those spaces among grown men, among professional athletes with dietitians and sports psychologists and analytics staff, if it can happen in those spaces, you know it can happen at all levels. So certainly we did not learn the lessons that we thought we would coming out of those scandals from the 90s because we haven't interrogated the structures themselves and wondered, is this stuff normal that we're asking of young people? Are the things that these kids are learning at a young age normal? Some big questions. We'll leave it there for now. We'll see what comes from these hearings. Also let people know we mentioned the open letter of which you are signatory. That's posted at hockeyabuseopenletter.com. Taylor McKee, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate the insight. Thanks so much for having me. All the best. That's uh, Taylor McKee, Assistant Professor of Sport Management at Brock University with a particular focus on hockey culture. Uh, One of the signatories of this open letter that we mentioned, calling for much more to be done holding these organizations and leadership to account hockeyabuseopenletter.com Well, following that uh, massive Rogers outage back on uh, July 7th, I guess it was, Canadians uh, understandably, I think, want some answers. You know, how and why did this happen? Uh, you know, specifically regarding Rogers Network, but more specifically, the bigger question about why are we so reliant on the status quo and, and what needs to be done to not just prevent this sort of thing in the future, but to, to give people more choice, to have more fallbacks to prevent the, this kind of damage. So yesterday, uh, Commons Committee, uh, an opportunity to uh, ask some tough questions of the CEO and other top officials at Rogers Communications. That led to a really interesting exchange between uh, one of the members of that committee and Rogers CEO, Tony Staffieri. We work every day in a very competitive environment, and we work hard to bring the best value for money for our customers and for Canadians. It's in our interest to do so. They have alternative, and they have choice. Wait, wait, so so, so wait, you you think Canadians have alternative and choice in this marketplace? Very much so. Um, And you're saying that with a straight face? 
Okay, okay. I, I'm running out of time. So here's another one you can maybe answer with a straight face. Do you think this is the end of the Roger Shaw deal? The coming together with Shaw is about creating scale in an industry where scale is important. It allows us to do two important things. One is make investments that neither one of us could do on our own. Investing more internet in rural and indigenous communities, but also to invest in the resiliency and redundancy of networks more than either one of us could do alone. With or, another, or perhaps to further concentrate industry whose very concentration is undermining resiliency and affordability for Canadians. I, I'm, I'm out of time, but, but I appreciate you being here today. Okay, so that was Liberal MP Nathaniel Erskine-Smith asking the questions, and I think his frustration, his surprise was uh, definitely understandable. So joining us to talk about what, if anything, we learned from this, uh, this hearing and the explanation from the company and what actually needs to change in this country. Very pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Michael Geist, Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law, Professor of Law at the University of Ottawa. Professor Geist, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So that was an interesting exchange, but, you know, the bigger question, I mean, what did we actually learn yesterday, in your view? That's a, that's a, that's a great way to start. I had a chance to appear before that committee as well on a panel that came at the end of a bunch of consumer groups and public interest voices. And, and my view, when asked by the committee, was that it was a pretty discouraging day, because while we did learn more about the sources of the outage and some of the things Rogers has promised, I think what we learned more than anything was that there isn't a whole lot separating Rogers, the chair of the, C, of the CRTC, the regulator, and even the minister, Champagne, in their views, all of them seemingly wanting to take the view that this was an unusual one-off situation and they are determined to ensure that it happens again. But concerns around the broader questions, around competition, around pricing, network resiliency, um, the Rogers-Shaw merger, all of those things in the view of, frankly, all three of them seem to be besides the point. Um, Whereas I would say for many of the members of parliament on that committee, they thought it was the point. It was really the the core takeaway from what took place a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, it almost seemed like they were talking past each other at times, right? And I think these MPs rightly noting in many cases that there's a, a deeper issue here just with our overall telecom status quo. Whereas, as Rogers sees it, you know, everything for the most part is pretty good. And we had a little hiccup here, a couple mistakes, no problem. We got it fixed. So in their view, the status quo still works. It's fine. And I think a lot of Canadians, including some on this committee, say, yeah, it really doesn't. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, you saw, and one of the things that made this interesting was that you saw this from MPs from across the table, from all the different parties, which is unusual. As you know, so often there's there's a whole lot of political theater uh, with, with MPs from particular parties taking diff- different positions. That didn't seem to be the case yesterday. All the MPs were concerned. Presumably they're hearing it from their constituents, or they may have experienced some of the outage themselves. And so they were, I think, far less content with uh, kind of some of the standard talking points that might have come from, say, the Rogers CEO or from the chair of the CRTC. And, and I think we're, we're a bit discouraged or certainly a bit surprised that you know, when issues around competition, pricing, resiliency, the merger, consumer protection, I mean, all the kinds of issues that I think really came to the fore in the immediate aftermath of the outage were all really sidelined by the government minister, certainly by the Rogers CEO and by the CRTC. None of them really wanted to engage at that level. 
Yeah, it seemed like that day when everything was so fresh and everyone was so upset and frustrated. And, and the signal from government seemed to be, yeah, you know, we're going to demand answers. Things need to change. And in the ensuing two weeks, it just seemed to all kind of fall by the wayside. Have you seen anything so far that indicates the government's committed to any sort of meaningful change here? Yeah, I, I must admit, I, I walked away feeling that the answer is probably no. Um, and I, I was one of those people that certainly experienced the Rogers outage and and expressed some hope that this might be the wake-up call, that this might be that seminal moment when you've got 12 million Canadians all kind of coming to the realization, both that we are deeply reliant on the network, that we are overly concentrated as in terms of what in terms of the kind of distribution of who dominates in this space so that there isn't a whole lot of choice and when someone goes down the effects are so broadly felt in canada more than they would be i think in many other places that that requires some real change and yet a little over two weeks later um, there was a, almost an element of let's move on. You know, we've identified a few things we can fix. Roger says, hey, we're going to throw a whack of money at some of these issues. But quite clearly, they, they'd like the merger to continue. Quite clearly, they really did not want to get into any sort of discussion um, around more regulation, around essential services or clear consumer rights. And you didn't really get the sense that the minister wanted to either. And CRTC chair sounded so pro-telecom that at one point in time, I think one of the NPs said that they, that they said that the, CR, the chair of the CRTC, the chair of the regulator, sounded a whole lot like a telecom executive. So what about the merger? I mean, does it change how we view uh, the impact of the merger? What, what should the follow be on that? Well, I, you know, from my perspective, the merger itself is indicative of a, of a country that if you're going to take competition seriously, I don't even know how it gets out of the starting gate. You know, we've, we've seen these kinds of mergers in, say, Manitoba, where Bell took over MTS Allstream, and, and basically Roger Shark are playing from that same playbook in the hope of getting it through. We've now had the Competition Bureau saying that they're concerned about this merger. And, you know, if you're one of the millions of Canadians that went through this, it, it, I can't imagine your response to having been offline for potentially days, not having access to 911, not having access to certain emergency services, is to say, well, what I really want is an even more consolidated network affecting even more Canadians. It just, it's just quite obviously not the, the solution that anyone is looking for. Well, you've written about this, both in terms of, you know, the short term and the long term. But in, in terms of, you know, from, from either side there, what, what should be the immediate priorities? What should be on the minister's to-do list? I think there's a whole bunch of things. And certainly, let's, uh, to be fair, he's got a number of things in terms of, um, in terms of emergency roaming and designed yeah. to try to address some of the assistance where necessary. But beyond that, I think we need clear-cut consumer rules. Uh, it shouldn't be up to the company to you know, sort of decide, well, I think this outage was worth... Uh, a day or this is worth two or five days or whatever it happens to be or perhaps nothing at all and i'll just make that decision i think we need clear regulations the same way we've got say in the airline sector that would identify what the you know what the penalties are for outages we need greater transparency associated with all of this so that we both understand what's happening during outages when things are going to come back online uh, and how those things 
can, might be addressed, and we need policies that deal with with the competition issue, with without doubt. Um, you know, that we're at a point in time where Canadian pricing remains high, choice is limited, you played off the top, the, the exchange with Nate Erskine-Smith around that. Um, these are real issues, and Canadians are facing them, and we haven't seen them as a real priority from the government, at least not uh, in recent years. We'll see if that changes in the weeks ahead. Much more at michaelgeist.ca. Appreciate your input on this, and uh, thanks for making some time for us here this afternoon. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Take care. Michael Geist, Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law at the University of Ottawa, where he's also a professor of law. Michaelgeist.ca, and he's written about some, some of these issues in more detail. So some of this seems easy and obvious, and yet you know, we're not seeing movement on that. You know, like, for example, the whole point of consumer compensation. Right, that should be a given. When you put so much trust in these companies, when we're so reliant on these companies, and this outage can have huge ramifications right across the country, not just for consumers, but for businesses, as we saw. So are people going to be properly compensated? You know, the transparency requirements. Uh, you know, how open are these companies being about these kinds of, of problems? So just those, those simple steps there. And another one, he notes, access to emergency services. It's one thing if you can't use your debit card to buy something, but if you can't call 911, then holy crap, we got a real problem here. So that should never be an issue. So we got to make sure there's some obvious, uh, you know, fallbacks when any kind of a problem like this arises. But yeah, as he says, big picture, you know, competition in the in the telecom sector. That's got to be addressed. You know, the status quo is problematic in so many ways. And we saw it back on July 7th, you know, just one example of that. And in his view, he thinks that the Roger Shaw merger should be, uh, uh, you know, dead in the water, basically. You heard the CEO of Rogers say, no, no, no. I mean, that shouldn't affect this. And we see this as, as a positive. Obviously, they got a vested interest there. But should this cause the government to have some second thoughts or at least to take a closer look at the impacts of this and in light of this situation? Yeah, probably. And, and so, yes, there, there's a lot we should expect from the company as well, not just in terms of compensating people, but meaningful steps to prevent this sort of thing from happening, to have some fallbacks in place for when something does happen, it doesn't have the same kind of domino effect that this did. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.